How Party Leaders Change Congress, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Democrats and Republicans are electing new leaders for their parties in the U.S. House and Senate, as a new era begins with the replacement of Speaker Nancy Pelosi. How much did Pelosi change Congress? How are the new leaders likely to corral their factions and set a new tone? And how should we judge this Congress on productivity and look forward to divided government? This week, I talked to Matthew Green of Catholic University. He's an author of the new book, Newt Gingrich, The Rise and Fall of a Party Entrepreneur, as well as Legislative Hardball on the House Freedom Caucus and Choosing the Leader on Leadership Elections in Congress. He finds that many of the dynamics of party factions and multidimensional leadership elections remain consistent. But there are novel situations, including the simultaneous transition of three top House Democratic leaders and demands for caucus rules changes in the Speaker election. Here's our conversation. So Nancy Pelosi uh, has uh, left the leadership uh, now after a long tenure uh, as Speaker and Democratic leader. Uh, So how would you compare her style and accomplishments to those of Newt Gingrich, who you just uh, wrote a book on? So, um, you know, Pelosi um, and Gingrich do have some similarities. They certainly, I would say, for the first you know, nine or 10 months of Gingrich's speakership. So 1995, um, he, he um, you know, he ratcheted up a lot of accomplishments and exercised a lot of power. So when people say, well, Pelosi's a very influential speaker, um, you know, are there any others who've been as influential as her? I think it's fair to say that the first nine or 10 months of Gingrich's speakership, he was also a very effective and influential speaker. Um the difference is that, you know, it was like concentrated for Gingrich. So his first nine or 10 months, he's doing an insane amount of things, passing the contract with America in the House, restructuring committees, um, you know, handpicking members of committees. Um, he's becoming a national figure that's rivaling, you know, a rival to the president. Um, but then things start to go downhill when he's got to deal with difficult, um, you know, divisions within his party and negotiate um, major agreements with the president of the opposite party and with the Senate. Um, Pelosi, she has had uh, successes throughout her experiences as speaker, as well as as a minority leader. And um, and one could argue that, you know, those successes are ones that were at least as important legislatively. Um, I think it's probably safe to say that in terms of um, legislative successes and legacy that Pelosi um, had a more successful has had a more successful speakership than Gingrich did, um, and you know there's a number of reasons for that. Um, style is part of it. Um, one thing that's interesting about um, that that occurred to me, um, you know, preparing for this interview was that you know one of the things that Gingrich railed against was machine politicians. The, the Democratic Party is a corrupt machine. Um, you know, machine politics are bad. And Pelosi comes from the legacy of machine politics. Her father was and you know ran basically a, a machine in a political machine in Baltimore. Um, and and that is in large part a lot of the skills she developed or learned from her father um, served her really well as speaker. If Gingrich had perhaps been a little bit more open to the the way that a machine works, he might have been more successful as a speaker than he was. So people talk as if uh, Newt Gingrich kind of left a permanent mark on the institution and changed how it operated. Has Pelosi uh, left uh, a permanent mark or is Gingrich's permanent mark overrated? The so. You know, one of the things that people say about Gingrich is that he transformed the House to make it a more centralized partisan institution. I think a more accurate way of putting it is that he added to uh, he added a major building block to that foundation. The the process of that transformational process of the House to become more partisan and more centralized in leadership had started before Gingrich, and it continued after him. Um, you can trace it back quite a ways, um, at least as far as Jim Wright, who was Speaker of the House after Tip O'Neill. Uh, he served in, from 1987 to 1989. 
Um, Jim Wright kind of exercised power as speaker in a way that we now just take for granted, but at the time was seen as fairly um, revolutionary or certainly going beyond the norms of what speakers could do. Um, Gingrich added a lot to that. He, um, he did so in a number of ways, uh, and part of it was exercising a lot more influence over committee assignments, um, putting term limits on committee chairs, um, and uh, which actually had been there before him, but he sort of, you know, he, he continued that tradition to kind of ensure that committee chairs couldn't be as powerful as they had been under Democrats. Um, and, and certain things that Gingrich did that weren't necessarily changes to the rules, but the way he exercised leadership, choosing certain individuals to be chairs, even though they weren't ne next in line in seniority, um, this kind of view that the speakership should play that, uh, that should be that degree of a micromanager and who gets opportunities and, and how the house operates. That's something that was fairly new for Ging that, that Gingrich introduced that we now, you know, kind of accept to a degree. Pelosi doesn't necessarily do that, but we understand that speakers have their favorites uh, and that if you want to be chair, you've, you can't be uh, on the wrong side of the speaker, for example. So Gingrich added a lot of those things and then Pelosi added more of them. Um, some of the things that she did, increasing the number of staff that are in leadership offices, um, emphasizing not just loyalty to the party, but personal loyalty as a precondition for um, getting things that you might want from leadership and from her specifically. Um, having a lot more influence over the legislative process, what bills come to the floor, even sometimes the contents of bills. So, you know, this is a long answer I'm giving to your question, but I think it, it's safe to say that this has been a, a trend that has started since the 1970s, 1980s, that we can look to individual speakers as um, playing a part in that trend, but it's really more than just one person. It's more than just Pelosi or more than just Gingrich. It's a bigger development that's been happening in the House that sees more power concentrated in leadership um, and uh, less power for the rank and file and less power for committees and committee chairs. So Pelosi uh, wasn't willing to go alone. Uh, she uh, uh, helped uh, to bring along with her Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn to leave the leadership, uh, enabling the rise of uh, three new members to the top uh, positions in the Democratic uh, House. Uh, it's also a, a large generational change. Um, uh, the, the new leaders are much younger uh, than those that are leaving. So are there any precedents for this kind of kind of mass uh, leadership uh, change? And how does this one compare to past moments of sort of generational change? It's not unusual for a, a leader of a party in the House or Senate to step down and anticipate that there'll be someone new who takes their place, maybe someone who's younger of the next generation. But to have two or three doing it simultaneously, um, I can't think of another time, certainly in modern House history, where that happened. Um, certainly not voluntarily anyway. So it's very, very unusual. Um, and it was, I think it was really remarkable that they were willing to do that. We know that, um, you know, so Pelosi and Hoyer did it. Uh, Clyburn, I think, is actually still trying to be in leadership in some capacity, but he is stepping down as a whip. Um, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation and figure out how that was done because Pelosi and Hoyer have had a rivalry that goes back many, many years. So it's hard to believe that Hoyer would, would do it simply because Pelosi said, you need to step down. Um, chances are there was some conversations that were going on over a fairly long period. And also maybe each individual leader, certainly Pelosi and Hoyer were thinking, you know, we are... Uh, we've been here for a long time, and, and perhaps it is best that rather than, um, you know, I stick around, say in Hoyer's case, and try to be the next Nancy Pelosi and step into her position as minority leader, um, that maybe I'm also, you know, ready, ready to go. So I don't know why this happened, but it really is a remarkable thing to see more than one leader of a party step down simultaneously and then have their positions be replaced by uh, the next generation of members of their party. And uh, tell us about this uh, new group, Jeffries, Clark, and Aguiar, and what we should expect from them. Uh, is this uh, continuity despite uh, seeming uh, to be changed demographically, or is it, uh, is it a, a new approach? 
it's going to be, it's really, it's hard to say at this point what those three will bring to the table uh, and how they may be different from their predecessors. I, I do think we should expect to see, at least from Jeffries, um, less emphasis on personal loyalty compared to Pelosi. You know, this was one of the things that really made Pelosi stand out as a leader was um, her emphasis on being loyal to her personally as well as to the party. And it's not clear that Jeffries, that's his style. It's also a difficult thing to pull off very well. Um, one of the things that helped Pelosi was that she had been around for quite some time before she joined leadership and had a long record of raising money for the party, um, doing favors for members, um, and, and kind of building a, um, a kind of coalition of support within the party. Um, Jeffries is widely liked in the Democratic caucus. Um, thus, there's no ch- there was no challenge to him running for leadership. But I don't know that he brings that kind of record to the table that will help him uh, or would allow him to kind of um, insist on personal loyalty from members. And it also is about your 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 ability to persuade. I think Pelosi, um, her personal her skill set allows her to be, um, you know, to to use both carrots and sticks. Um, they used to talk about how she would use her grandma voice with members, particularly male members of the Democratic Party who displeased her or were threatening to um, defect against the party. Um, She knew how to cycle. In other words, she knew how to psychologically kind of get members to feel bad about being disloyal and feel shamed almost. Um, You know, Hoyer also kind of had a skill set in that respect, but he wasn't using shame as much, I think, as Pelosi did. And I don't know that Jeffries or Clark or Aguilar have that skill set. So they may have to emphasize more carrots than sticks in bringing about loyalty. I do think that we may see a bit more openness in leadership from these new, these three new leaders, uh, more inclusion of rank and file members in the decision-making process. One of the things that really was important to Pelosi that often was criticized was her desire to centralize decision-making in the speaker's office or in the minority leader's office. And it's not clear to me that Jeffries has that same desire to do that. And so we might see a little bit more openness in how decisions are made in the Democratic caucus. This also happened without a a big fight. I guess there was a contested race, as you mentioned, where uh, Clyburn retained a a smaller leadership position, Um, but there didn't seem to be a big ideological fight in particular um, and doesn't seem to be a new leader from either the Progressive Caucus or especially the squad that sort of worked their way up. Um, So is that uh, a sign that the House Democratic Caucus is, is more unified or how much should we read into that? You know, it's hard to read too much into the lack of competition for leadership positions when um, you know the troika stepped down. <clears throat> it was a little bit, you know, it was a it was a bit harkening back to the old days of the Democratic Caucus in the mid to late twentieth century, where you had um, this kind of leadership ladder, and whoever stepped down, the next person would take their place. And there, so there wasn't a lot of um, infighting over, say, who will be the next speaker or the next majority leader or majority whip. Um, that didn't last too long, but that's about the, the early, the, the most, you know, the, when I think about historical comparisons, that's what I think about. But that didn't, but, you know, the Democratic Party in the mid to late 20th century was full of factional divisions, uh, right? You had a major Southern wing um, that uh, for much of that period uh was supporting, um, uh, you know, basically white supremacy in the South. Um, and then you had a liberal Northern wing, which included, you know, folks who were civil rights activists. Um, and, you know, the, 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 right, the, the saying, the, the famous, um, the, you know, the, the, this famous story is when uh, um, former Vice President Nance Garner, uh, Democrat, went to Sam Rayburn and said, you know, I know you're Speaker now of the House, you know, I used to be speaker and here's how you deal with, you know, difficulties in your party is you just get everybody in a big room. We used to have the caucus, the binding caucus, you get together, you talk things through and you work it out. And Sam Rayburn said to Garner, are you insane? If I do that with my party, they'll kill each other. Um, So there, there were no real leadership fights, but within the party, there were all these divisions. So 
uh, if we think about what's happening right now, true, we didn't we don't see a lot of competition for leadership races, and we're not hearing about big infighting in the party like we are with the Republican conference in the in in the House. But that doesn't mean there aren't divisions. That doesn't mean there aren't these factions. And actually, I think um, one of the biggest challenges that Jeffries is going to face is that progressives in the party view him as a bit of an insider and a bit too conservative for their tastes uh, and a bit too willing to compromise to get things done. So one of his, I think one of his number one challenges that he's going to need to address early on is how do you bring you know, Ocasio-Cortez, other members of the squad into the decision-making process so that they feel like they have a stake in the game, but they don't um, undermine your ability to, um, you know, to have a unified democratic front and to uh, oppose Republicans and their agenda. I will say that because the Democrats will be in the minority in the House, Jeffries and his colleagues have a bit of an advantage because they, you know, their primary job is to oppose the Republicans and get a majority in the House in the next election. Um, but that doesn't mean there can't be fighting within the party, and he's going to have to figure that out pretty quickly. So as you mentioned, on the Republican side, uh, there remains uh, conflict, um, but it seems to take this uh, similar form as as before, where there's a, a clear leader for speaker, but there's uh, dis- clear dissension and people willing to. Um, perhaps uh, act on it, uh, maybe even irrationally, but not necessarily having uh, a clear alternative uh, path uh, to, to take over. So what, what do you make of the current uh, fight over the, the speakership uh, and uh, the, the Republican conferences r- r- remaining dissenters? So what Kevin McCarthy is dealing with and the Republicans in the House are dealing with is in some ways not all that different from what we've seen in the House over the last decade. Um, and more, really, um, you know, past nominees for speaker, past uh, speakers have faced at times pretty serious rebellions in their effort to get elected speaker. It happened to Newt Gingrich in 1997, happened again after the 1998 election, it happened to John Boehner, it happened to Nancy Pelosi. Um, and in fact, in each of the last 10 floor elections for speaker, there has always been at least one member of the majority party who will not vote for their party's nominee for speaker. Um, and this, is a, this did not used to be the case for most of the 20th century, so, but this has become a norm. So in some ways, what we're seeing is, is become you know, um, fairly typical of House elections for speaker. I think that what is different here and what makes McCarthy's position so precarious is number one, he has a very tiny majority to deal with. He can only lose four votes on the House uh, in the House on the House vote for Speaker next month or in January, um, assuming that they those four vote for a named candidate other than him. Um, he can only lose four of those, or otherwise he isn't elected Speaker. So he's a tiny majority. And then number two is that the folks who are opposing him so far. They don't show any interest in compromising their position for the most part. They remain opposed to him. Uh, Matt Gates said, "Look, I still oppose McCarthy. McCarthy's met with him. He says, I don't care. I'm not. I don't want to vote for you." Uh, Matt Rosendale has written an op-ed saying, "I don't like McCarthy. We need a new leader." This is this is not a good sign for McCarthy if he's trying to get these folks to vote with him on the floor. So there is a very real possibility that McCarthy may not get a majority of votes on the House floor this time around. Um, and if that's the case, then we get into a situation we haven't seen in a century, which um, those of us who follow these things have been looking forward to for a long time, which is a multi-ballot uh, vote for speaker with a lot of negotiation, a lot of discussion, a lot of uncertainty, and a lot of politics. But there was a, a surprise that you recently uh, wrote about in the Whips race, uh, where the more moderate candidate um, succeeded uh, over uh, Jim Banks. Um, so does that uh, signify that there might be another part of the Republican caucus who is uh, wants to move in another direction, or what should we read into that? So I think the this this race for Whip, where most uh, a lot of people thought that Jim Banks would win because he was more conservative ideologically. He was touting Trump and saying, Trump likes me the most. Um, You know, the assumption was, well, he's the more conservative member. The Republican Party is more conservative now. He'll get elected. 
I actually think that that um, that whip race told us that there's a lot in common with past leadership races since at least the mid 20th century. In other words, there's been a lot more continuity than difference in leadership races. So yes, the Republican conference might be more conservative. Yes, Trump might have a lot of influence over the party. But when it comes to choosing leadership candidates in Congress, lawmakers care about who is going to help them achieve their objectives. And they've been that, and that's what members have been like in these races, at least going back to the 1960s. And what they care about isn't just ideology. It's also about helping getting reelected. And Tom Emmer is someone who had been the head of the NRCC, the National Republican Campaign Committee. He'd raised a lot of money for members. Uh, it's a difficult job. He showed a lot of effort and dedication in that job. Um, and, you know, so lawmakers who might have been very conservative and say, well, Jim Banks, yeah, I agree with him ideologically, but Emmer's looking out for me. He's helping me out. And if he's elected whip, he's going to keep looking out for me and helping me. Um, and so, uh, you know, things like that suggest that, you know, the results suggest that actually the Republican Party is much like parties in Congress when it comes to choosing leaders. Um, there isn't that much difference between how leaders are chosen. You know, the, the, there isn't that much difference between what members care about now um, than what they care, they've been caring about for the last, you know, 50, 60 years. But you've also written about the uh, House Freedom Caucus, which does seem to be a bit of a different um, uh, species. Um, are they likely to continue to serve this same role that they did uh, under, say, President uh, Obama or, or Trump? Uh, is there something changing about what those what those members stand for? Um, they just released a, a list of demands uh, you probably saw, which looked a lot like a preview of, of 2010 uh, holding the debt ceiling and the uh, government shut down hostage um, uh, trying to move the party rightward um, but but what should we make of their evolution and their likely role this time it, it would be a safe bet to say that the caucus will repeat the same tactics and strategy that they first used when they were formed in 2015 uh, which is to push their party further to the right to be uh, willing to oppose their party on procedural votes uh, and to do so in order to encourage more confrontation um, and with uh, President Biden um, and to um, you know basically fight. That's their big thing. You fight for what you what you want. Um, they thought that this is the better way to go when John Boehner was speaker and Obama was president. They thought Boehner compromised too much. And that was one of the reasons they formed in the first place. So um, I'm not surprised to see them making these kinds of demands about how are we going to, um, how can we best exploit our leverage as a majority party in uh, in one chamber of Congress? Um, and if that's true, then McCarthy's going to have the same problems that Boehner did, which is um, some of these bills they want to use as leverage uh, have to pass if they don't. The government shuts down, the U.S. defaults on its on its debt, and the, the consequences can be anywhere from politically damaging to um, catastrophic for not just the party, but for the country. Um, and those, they just don't work very well. <laughs> Tactics just don't work very well. Um, I think that, um, and so in, the, in that respect, the caucus is not going to be that different than how it was when it was first formed in, in the first few years of its existence. There are a couple of differences, though, from that early period. Number one is that the caucus is pushing for rules changes. They want procedural changes that give them more power or at least give McCarthy less power. And depending on what McCarthy does, that could have a long-term effect on the caucus's influence, the power of committee chairs, and the power of the speaker. Um, you know, Some of the things they want to do open up the decision-making process. And one could argue that that's just inherently good for Congress. Other things they want to do, like they would like to have a uh, adoption of the so-called Hastert rule, where only the bill, only the bill, only bills with the support of a majority of the majority party get a vote on the floor, um, could be very damaging because things like the debt limit are unpopular with Republicans, but they have to pass. And McCarthy can't pass those things if a majority of his party can veto it. Um, so 
Um, it's really important to see what rules are adopted uh, by the party or by McCarthy in exchange for Freedom Caucus support. Um, so that's one difference. And I think the other is that the caucus has become much more, for the lack of a better word, Trumpy. Um, you know, it's if there have been there have been some really good interviews with former members uh, like Mick Mulvaney in recent weeks who have said, you know, this caucus has changed. Um, when we joined, we wanted to reduce spending and we were concerned about having a, a say. We wanted to be able to, to, to move the party to the right or at least have votes on the floor on things. Now the party has folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert who are talking about, um, you know, they're, they're touting Christian nationalism. Um, some of them are outright racists and anti-Semites, um, and many seem to be more interested in getting on um, Fox News and getting a lot of um, attention on Twitter than actually changing what the House does. And that could change or affect the kinds of tactics and strategy that the caucus uses. Um, and it also, in some ways, makes them more dangerous because those members may not care whether the government shuts down. They just want to get a lot of attention. Um, and that makes it hard to negotiate. You can't negotiate very easily with people who just want attention as opposed to actually want to legislate. So we'll take you over to the other chamber with which you're less uh, familiar and have you do a little comparison on the Senate side. Um, uh, Mitch McConnell recently uh, faced a, some something of a half-hearted uh, challenge uh, from from Rick Scott, who got some uh, votes. Um and uh, but but there does seem to be a real difference. Um, you know, both uh, McConnell and McCarthy criticized Trump after January 6th, but McConnell has kind of kept his distance, uh, whereas um, McCarthy has has been regularly having to, to kowtow to, to Trump uh, to keep his party in line. So why why has McConnell been able to, to do that where McCarthy has not? And what other differences do you see uh, between the Republican caucuses in each chamber? So one of the important uh, developments in the Freedom Caucus, <clears throat> the House Freedom Caucus, was its decision to basically embrace Trump when Trump was president. And they didn't do that right away. But by the end of the first year of the Trump presidency, the Freedom Caucus and Mark Meadows, its chair, um, basically saw their role as being a cheerleader for Trump. Um, and that legacy, that, that has continued in the years since. Um, so that McCarthy felt that, look, I can't um, completely distance myself from Trump in part because I do have a number of members who openly support him, endorse him, and they're organized. Um, and they have a history of blocking what Republican leaders want to do and even voting with Democrats. Um, so whereas Mitch McConnell never had that, he had individual senators who would talk up Trump or say that Trump was the greatest, you know, Senate president ever like Lindsey Graham, but it wasn't an organized group like the Freedom Caucus. Um, I do think there's also just a difference in their view of politics. I think that, um, and, and, you know, maybe this reflects the founding father's view of the two chambers. The house is supposed to be closer to the people. Um, members only serve for two years. They're all up for reelection at the same time. The Senate, smaller members serve six years. They're not all up for reelection. And so um, I think McConnell, perhaps as a result of that or reflecting that institutional difference, um, could sort of treat Trump with a little bit more of, um, you know, put him more at arm's length and say, OK, yes, he's saying this, saying that, but he'll be gone. Most of us will still be here. And we'll, you know, at some point he won't be president, but we'll probably still be here. We were here before, we'll be here after. Um, so we don't need to, to follow Trump's every whim. Whereas McCarthy, um, perhaps reflecting, you know, being a House member, has been excessively worried about uh, Trump's influence over Republican voters, over primary voters, and uh, very much afraid of, um, you know, Trump's displeasure. Um, I, I also, though, think it's stylistic, frankly. I think Mitch McConnell's attitude is, is much more, he's not nearly as afraid of Trump, frankly, as, Mitch, as, uh, uh, as McCarthy is. So um, for all those things, you've got the institutional differences, you've got an organized group in one chamber versus another, you've got their personal attitudes about politics and Trump. Um, you've had McCarthy be much more sensitive to what Trump is saying and thinking than uh, Mitch McConnell has been. 
Um, so let's uh, let's go to the the Democrats. Um, Senator Schumer, I think, until like summer of last year, when he was able to to pass a uh, the chips bill and uh, get an agreement uh, with Senator Manchin, was was usually compared negatively to to Nancy Pelosi. But there seemed to be um, uh, a, a renaissance, or at least uh, more support uh, for for Schumer on the uh, the Democratic uh, side. And he does have a bit of different of a different style. Um, one of the things that I've noted is that uh, Senator uh, uh, Sanders is officially part of the leadership, as is uh, Senator Manchin, um, and he you know fancies himself someone who talks to everyone all of the time. So, um, what, how does that uh, compare to to uh, the House side among the Democrats? I do think that, uh, I mean, I agree that <clears throat> Pelosi tends to get a lot more credit for um, the legislative successes of, of the party in her chamber and also more credit for keeping the party unified in her chamber. Um, but it cannot have been easy for Schumer to maintain discipline in a party where you only need to lose one vote against a unified minority and you can't get your legislation enacted. And it is a party that includes, yes, Bernie Sanders. It also includes Joe Manchin. And then it includes folks like Kirsten Sinema, who to call her a conservative Democrat isn't quite it. She's got her own agenda, right? She's just declared that she's going to leave the Democratic Party. She is a party of herself and she's always been that way. So how Schumer has been able to do that, um, I think is a great question. I think, um, and this is somewhat, you know, again, I, I would, I'm not on the inside, so I don't know exactly how he's done it. And there's been fewer studies of Schumer's leadership than there have been of Pelosi, but he seems to have uh, a real deep understanding of every member of his party. He's very patient with them. Um, Yes, he's willing to talk to any of them at any time about anything. And he also seems to be willing to put a lot of things on the table uh, for negotiation purposes. Um, so, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's not perfect, but Pelosi has made mistakes. Schumer has made mistakes. But he seems to have been able, he seems to be able to communicate with every member of his party in a way that they feel that he's listening to them. Um, he's taking their concerns into account. Uh, and he's working really hard on their behalf to, um, uh, you know, to, to get the things they want in exchange for their vote. So uh, we had a strange evolution in the uh, uh, sort of uh, way that people have um, looked at this Congress's productivity. Um, it started with comparisons to FDR among Biden and uh, Dems were going to do everything. Then last year uh, at, at this time, we were kind of at the, the nadir of, uh, you know, Build Back Better's failure and nothing was going to happen. Uh, and then by the summer, uh, we, we are not quite back to the FDR, but but realizing that quite a bit was passed uh, by this Congress, some of it bipartisan and some of it uh, partisan. So, so how should we uh, assess uh, the policy record of this Congress? And does it say anything about uh, trends in, in the institution? I think this Congress is a good uh, uh, object lesson on why you should never evaluate the productivity of a Congress until it's actually over. Because um, your narrative is exactly right. It's, oh, FDR, which I thought was silly anyway, I mean, FDR had huge majorities during Great Depression and the Republican Party was hated by so many people. I mean, he, he could do all kinds of things. Biden never had that. He never had that political context in which to operate. But then at the same time to say, oh, this bill has failed and it's still not even the Congress isn't even halfway done um, was in retrospect uh, very premature. I think that now that we're nearly done, um, we're still not completely done. So more could happen. But at this stage... I would say if this if the current Congress stopped right now, I think it would be safe to say it's been productive in terms of productivity, a very impressive Congress. Um, and even more so when you take into consideration the tiny majorities that Democrats have had to deal with in the House and Senate. Um, in terms of other Congresses, I would not compare it to New Deal Congresses. Um, the New Deal Congresses were more productive. But again, Democrats had much larger majorities to work with. I think you could probably compare it favorably or see somewhat, maybe it's on par with um, Obama's first Congress, um, at least in terms of the sheer volume of legislation that was enacted. 
um, maybe the first year of the 103rd Congress. So this would be Bill Clinton's first Congress, um, but but not necessarily the second year, which was less productive. Um, but again, in those two cases, Democrats had larger majorities. So in some ways, a better comparison might be George uh, W. Bush's first Congress, the 107th, because he had very small majorities in the House and Senate. And in fact, Republicans lost control of the Senate in the middle of 2001 when Senator Jim Jeffords left the Republican Party. Uh, and yet, despite that, uh, Republicans were able to get a fair amount of their agenda enacted. So I think that this Congress is one of those that would, I think, go down in history as a very productive one with a sort of bonus for being productive um, with in, in a polarized environment with very small majorities that President Biden had to work with. So we're entering a divided uh, government again, which is uh, not a new thing uh, for, for us to uh, experience. Every time that we're in it, we have this debate about, um, you know, is uh, the, the trouble getting things done um, a kind of inherent uh, due to polarization or the close uh, margins? Uh, is it about the way that the individual leaders uh, are able to forge coalitions uh, or not? Or uh, have we kind of overestimated the difficulty altogether and we always um, kind of get things done? So, so how should we think about uh, the divided government period we're entering? So, um, it, it, you know, the safe bet is that this is going to be a repeat of um, the second two years of Obama's first term, the second two years of Clinton's first term, the second two years of Trump's first term, where you go from unified government to divided and the agenda uh, shifts dramatically, the amount of bills goes down, uh, you see a lot more infighting, you see a lot more high profile um, fights over the budget, over funding the federal government, over, yes, the debt limit. Um, there's no reason to think that that'll be any different in the next two years, except that um, the Democrats do control the Senate um, by, I guess, a vote or two. I'm not sure. Kirsten Cinema is independent. I'm not sure who she's going to caucus with, but uh, Democrats have at least 50 members, uh, which is all they need. Um, so you have that. Uh, the Republicans have the tiniest majority in the House. And while the majority party has major significant agenda control in that chamber. Um, you do have vehicles by which a cross-party majority could force things to the floor, like a discharge petition, for example. Um, and if you have all the Democrats and five Republicans is all you need to sign a discharge petition, then uh, a bill has to come to the floor, even if the leadership doesn't want it or a committee, a committee chair doesn't want it. So uh, Democrats actually have some ways of um, moving the agenda further to the left than you might otherwise expect in divided government. You also have, you do have Joe, Bi excuse me. Yeah, you do have Joe Biden, um, who um, is a creature of the Senate. He was in the Senate for many, many, many years. And he also uh, likes to negotiate. He likes to bargain. Is he going to get uh, the Freedom Caucus to go along with him? Probably not. But could he convince five or six Republicans to go with him on something? Um, possibly, depending on the issue. Could he convince Kevin McCarthy? Maybe. I mean, McCarthy is, it's a little unclear what kind of a leader he's going to be, assuming he's speaker. Um, but, you know, Biden does have significant negotiation skills that um, could help get legislation enacted. Maybe not liberal legislation, might be more moderate, but on, you know, in certain issues in which there's a cross-party coalition that supports the, you know, that is supportive of the legislation, you could see some, um, some major legislative um, activity. So, you know, and then you do have, um, yeah, so you do have research that shows that Congress is still, um, you know, still productive, even in cases of divided government. You do have, um, you know, cross parties that, uh, coalitions that pass legislation. So, it's not as if nothing happens in divided government, even without a close margin in the House, even without uh, people like the president, uh, like President Biden, who can negotiate. You still see Congress being legislatively productive in divided government. So we've been talking mostly about uh, the, the leaders, um, but uh, part of your uh, history of studying Newt Gingrich is about um, well before he was um, 
in charge, um, people point to things like his, his use of C-SPAN and fundraising and candidate selection, that kind of thing. Um, so who are the kind of up and comers in Congress that we should be watching um, for ways that they're changing the institution or could change the institution in the future? Giving it some thought about who might be the up and comers, it's always a little hard to say because um, sometimes you don't realize what influence they're going to have uh, until they've already exercised it. Um, you know, Newt Gingrich, for the first several terms of his congressional career, was seen as this kind of annoying outsider who didn't really. Uh, legislate or understand the legislative process and was busy writing a lot of memos about uh, transforming society. Um, and it wasn't until, for example, he had a high profile um, um, confrontation with then Speaker Tip O'Neill on the House floor in 1984 that he acquired national notoriety and was able to exploit that in part to help transform the Republican Party in the House to one that was more focused on party, um, you know, party, um, party loyalty uh, and, and team. And so party is, you know, thinking of your party as a team than it had been before. I think on the, you know, on the Democratic side, I'd look to some of these, <clears throat> I'd certainly look to some of these junior folks in leadership um, that might, you know, move up the ranks uh, further or have more influence, like the new Democratic Caucus Chair Pete Aguilar, for example. Um, I would look to some of the folks uh, even further down on the leadership uh, list who have been who are relatively new or moving up. Um, and the same on the Republican side. Um, you know, I think that um, uh, you know the Republican side is a little hard. It's a little hard to game out um, because you do have uh, folks in the Freedom Caucus who, um, uh, you know, are sticking around or exercising more and more influence. Folks like Jim Jordan, who is becoming—I uh, mean, he's going to be the next chair of the Judiciary Committee. If you had told me that when he first was elected to Congress, I would have said that's not going to happen. <laughs> so um, you know, you have folks like that who are going to. Um, exercise more influence and maybe move the party further to the right. Um, but, you know, other than that, I, you know, I'm sort of hesitate to name names because it's just hard at this stage to say who among the younger members are going to be the ones moving the party uh, or shaping the party in the future. So you are a political scientist, but you sometimes uh, act uh, like a historian as well and draw from uh, journalism as well. So talk a little bit about kind of what you see uh, journalists or, or people familiar with the history talking about that they that we could learn from and uh, what uh, uh, political science can can add to people who don't usually uh, uh, see politics through that lens. So I think we can learn from historians the importance of um, having a, um, frankly, an historical view of, of politics. Um, <clears throat> I remember when Trump was first elected and so many of my colleagues in political science were completely shocked. How could this happen? I was also very surprised. Um, but those who studied uh, the history of American political culture, who studied uh, Reconstruction, who studied the 1840s and 1850s and the Know Nothing Party and things of that sort said, oh, well, this is not a surprise to us. Uh, this, has been a, this has long been a thread in American political thinking. Um, so I think historians can provide us with a bigger picture understanding of um, what's ha what, change, what, has ch what changes in American politics and what does not and what is really part of, uh, a, you know, part of our legacy, our historical legacy. Um, I also just think that studying the history of Congress is, is interesting and gives us, um, perspective about, um, how, how Congress can work, how it, uh, could work, how it works better, how, uh, it works, it doesn't work as well, et cetera. From, I think journalists, I, I read a lot of these journalists, um, who cover, um, what's going on on the inside. Uh, <clears throat> this used to be something that political scientists did more, um, you know, they would write about kind of the ins and outs of uh, the politics of the majority party in the House or the leader or Senate leadership, um, you know, 
folks like Richard Fenno would do interviews. They're really talking to people and figuring out what are they thinking? What are they doing? Um, that has largely fallen out of favor in political science, and that has been taken up more and more by journalists. So uh, there's a lot of great journalists covering what's happening in Congress. They are talking about, um, <clears throat> you know, who did McCarthy meet with today? Um, what members of the Freedom Caucus are saying X versus Y? Um, who are the disgruntled members of the Republican conference in the Senate? Um, you know, they've just recently, there's a group of them that have organized and they're calling themselves something like the Breakfast Club. I don't, I don't know what, what this is, but um, this is journalists telling this. So like, oh, really? So Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz and, and, you know, some other senators are getting together? That's interesting. Um, they're doing the interviews. They're, go they're doing the... The insider stuff that is what makes the politics of Congress so interesting and it's really the foundation of congressional politics, in my, in my view. Um, however, what political scientists can bring to the table, particularly to journalists, which I think um, is important, is, that, is to not get lost in the personalities too much. That, you know, to say, oh, well, so-and-so talked to so-and-so is very interesting, but, um, you know, what what is what are the political incentives for someone to act this way? Um, how how does the how do the the procedures and rules of the chamber uh, influence what Congress does, regardless of who the speaker is or who the minority whip is or what caucus is formed? Um, how do lawmakers balance their competing interests, their electoral needs, their ambitions, those kinds of things? These are the kinds of things. And, and then also, what's the bigger political context? Um, right, polarization is something that's bigger than just what one journalist can talk about. Um, and the causes of things like polarization are more complicated than what you might see in a typical news article. So there are a few folks like Ezra Klein who do a really good job of bringing together history, journalism, political science. Um, but I think that it would be beneficial to journalists to... Um, to look to even more so, like more journalists to be looking at what political scientists are doing, what historians are doing to help inform their work and kind of give a deeper, more informed analysis of congressional politics. So we should let you give a pitch for the Newt Gingrich uh, book. Um, why uh, should we uh, read a, another book about that period with, when, with so much is going on right now? And what, how is your take different from others? So uh, if you want to know how Congress got to the way it was, uh, one of the most important figures to understand is Newt Gingrich. He did not make Congress a polarized place. Uh, he cannot be blamed for everything that you don't like about Congress, like some people do. But we argue in the book that if you want to understand um, the almost the cultural norms that have made members of Congress act as if their party matters so much and party loyalty is so critical, then you've got to look to Newt Gingrich. Um, so what we do in the book is we're, we, our book uh, is really the first intellectual, academic, nonpartisan view of Gingrich's career in Congress. We're not interested in making him the boogeyman. We're not interested in saying that Gingrich was like, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. We just want to understand what motivated Newt Gingrich. How did he become influential in Congress? What kind of influence did he exercise? And what does that tell us about the role of individuals in shaping congressional politics? So we use, uh, we do original interviews. We, we do an extensive amount of archival research. We uncover lots of interesting new memos and things that, uh, you know, in our archival research, in our interviews about Gingrich, we do an extensive amount of uh, research into journalistic accounts of Gingrich to really try to understand um, what motivated him and the, what kind of entrepreneur he was in Congress. Um, and then, you know, and then of course, how, why he was successful and why he was not. He moved up the, into leadership. He was very influential in uh, shaping the way Congress and the Republican Party operate, but he had a less than successful speakership and eventually resigned after the 1998 election. So we talk about how those things are connected and why the same things that might have made him successful moving into power in the 1980s and early 1990s, um, in some ways planted the seeds of his own destruction as Speaker of the House. And what's next? What are you working on now? And what will you be looking for in the next Congress? 
Well, one of the things I would like to do is do a kind of update on my book on the Freedom Caucus, which went through the first year of Trump's presidency. And that is right about the time that the Freedom Caucus became much more of a cheerleader for Trump. So um, every two years, people say that, you know, the Freedom Caucus is going to go now. They don't have a future. And yet they managed to survive. So what I'd like to do is talk about their relationship with Trump and how that may have helped them continue as an important force in congressional and national politics. Now, as far as the next two years, uh, you know, the first thing I want to see is that speakership election. I want to see what happens. And as I, uh, you know, as I said, I'm I'm rooting for a multi-ballot vote for speaker, because that'll be really interesting. And maybe McCarthy won't even become speaker. It'll be somebody else, which would be interesting. And then uh, I want to see how um, the Republicans are able to deal with being uh, the only majority party, uh, well, with being a majority party in only one chamber uh, and the opposite party being uh, in the White House. How are they going to manage their factions? How are they going to come up with a coherent strategy and a coherent agenda and avoid the pitfalls that previous parties have faced in their position with shutdowns and uh, damaged brand and uh, internal infighting and coup attempts? You know, this is, it's, 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 it's going to be a real challenge for McCarthy and for other leaders uh, and for Republicans, especially uh, in the House these kinds of challenges. And so I'm really interested to see how they're able to navigate those in the next two years. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out. How the House Freedom Caucus Gains Power in Congress. Are Divided Governments the Cause of Delays and Shutdowns? Compromise Still Works in Congress and with Voters. How Media Coverage of Congress Limits Policymaking. And do congressional committees still make policy? Thanks to Matthew Green for joining me. Please check out Newt Gingrich, The Rise and Fall of a Party Entrepreneur, and then listen in next time. 